Well, last Sunday, um, the Lord continued to minister to us regarding our um, perception of the body of Christ, of how we treat each other, of the kind of witness we are. Uh, and, you know, it, it fitted so perfectly in with what we've been um, studying through First Peter. Um, Peter's been really just challenging um, those that he wrote to just to consider um, because of all the, the blessings we have in Christ, because of the fact that we're a chosen generation, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we're a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, and it tells us that, you know, in time past, we weren't a people. We didn't have these blessings, but now we've been given all these things. And so the, the challenge that Peter's been bringing is, okay, so knowing all of this, knowing the position we now have, how are we going to respond? How are we going to live? And this is what he's been building on as we've been going through these studies. So uh, again, just real thank you um, to Leon for sharing what he did last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, encourage you to go online, listen to the teaching again. Um, there was a, a number of things in there that were really uh, insightful, really poignant that will, uh, I'm sure, speak to your heart. We're going to carry on this morning, though. Um, we are going to try and conclude um, end of chapter four. Just a few verses uh, is all we're going to look at this morning. Um, but these verses are really uh, interesting because of that which they bring to us, the, the challenge um, that they bring when we start to think about what's actually being said here. So we go into verse 17. Uh, that's where we've got up to. And it says there, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, on its own, that we, we might just read that, we might just skip over that. But we, we can't really, um, if we're diligent as Christians, just ignore that statement. What does it mean that, that judgment is going to begin at the house of God? It goes on and says, and if it first begin at us, what should be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God. Okay, so now we're categorizing as Peter's already done between those that are saved, those that are perishing. The world is divided into those two groups. We know that judgment's coming upon the world. But now it's saying that judgment's going to be coming upon us too. It's, in fact, it's going to begin with us. And then verse 18 says, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, it's an interesting statement in itself, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's calling us, Peter's calling us to think about our own salvation, how actually it's not down to our ability. It's not down to how good we are. There is only one way. The, the idea of uh, the righteous being scarcely saved, it, it's simply, it, it's how narrow a door we have to go through to obtain salvation. And that door, of course, is Jesus Christ. There is not, there is not multiple Roots to heaven. The, the world would have us believe that there are various ways we can be saved. You could be saved by following after this religion or that religion or trying to adopt a certain creed or practice in your life. Uh, you know, th that's not what scripture teaches. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then a statement that is so offensive to the, the world's ears that it says, no one can come to the Father but by me. There is only one way to be saved. In fact, no other religion really offers a uh, a solution to the salvation question. Of course, other religions have kind of concepts of salvation or an afterlife and so on. But the Bible is the only one that really addresses it. Even in conversations I've had over the years with Muslims, one of the challenges I've often put to them is, what do you do with the sin problem? Because the moment you accept that there is a deity, there is a higher power, and that we are subject to that creator, the one who is uh, responsible for life. We know that life couldn't come about by random uh, chance processes. That's just nonsense. You know, although much of the world's academia tends to go down that road, it's scientifically bankrupt, let alone uh, anything else. You know, the, the question then comes, how can a just God, a God who is uh, by definition just, allow sin into his presence or those that are sinful? And the Bible is the only 
place that you're going to find an answer to that question. The Bible and Christianity is the only, well, Judaism to a point, because obviously within Judaism you have that which is expounded in the Gospels, that which of course is fulfilled in the Gospels. But it's the only religion, if you can use that expression, it's not really a religion as you know, but you know, it's the only way, it's the only place where we can find an answer to the sin problem. And that is that a innocent substitute takes our place and pays for sin. That is the only way we can get to go to heaven. Every other religion that has kind of a heaven as its kind of final goal, you know, has maybe various ways that you could get there, but it still doesn't address the sin problem. How can you get to spend eternity in the presence of a, a holy God, a righteous God, a just God, unless sin is dealt with? Of course, Christianity is the only one that it deals with that. So, you know, Peter says that if the righteous are scarcely saved, you know, there is only one way. If though, if people in the world reject that, well, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What's going to be their end? And of course, Peter's going to expound on that. And his second epistle. Uh, but let's go back to verse 17, because I only really want to just make camp here for a little while this morning. Now, uh, this actually is drawn out of a four-part study uh, that we've done previously. But I think it's such an important topic that we ought to spend a little bit of time as we're at this place in First Peter this morning. So really, if we're to understand verse 17, what it's saying is for the specific season of judgment, that's really the idea uh, in the Greek, for the specific season of judgment will commence at the house of God. Now, we know, because scripture makes it very, very clear, that there is a time of judgment coming upon this world. No question about it. All the way through, you know, the Old Testament, it was prophesied. It speaks of the day of the Lord. It's a, it's a day of woe and foreboding. It's a day when God will pour out his wrath on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. So, you know, we've got to ask then, if this judgment is coming, which we know, we're told here that this season of judgment that's coming the specific season, this is not just random general judgment, this is a specific time that's coming. We're told that it's going to commence or begin at the house of God. So what does that mean? Well, the word judgment occurs over 300 times in the in the Bible. It's a very common theme. Uh, there's over 100 specific references to that specific season of judgment that I've just been referring to, that time that's coming. 25 times we find that expression, the day of the Lord. So, you know, this whole period of time that's coming is very well attested to in Scripture. But what about the church? Well, Peter says that this specific season of judgment is going to begin with the church. Now, we may initially think, well, isn't the church exempt? Because, of course, Christ died for our sin. Our sin is paid for on the cross. And so when we stand before God, God sees us as the perfection that's in his own son. He sees us as sinless because Christ took our sin. And in exchange, we were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, that is true. However, when we get to stand before uh, the beamer seed of Christ, in First uh, Corinthians 3, we're told very clearly there that our work is going to be judged, is going to be assessed. Uh, and those who have uh, built with wood, hay and straw or things that can be burnt up by fire, they will still be saved. And we're told that a very scary statement in First Corinthians 3, yet so is by fire. In other words, they're going to get into heaven, but, you know, purely because of the grace of God is clearly what it's being alluded to. Those that have built with gold, silver, and precious stones, in speaking of that which is spiritual, that which is eternal or of eternal value, it's what Matthew said about, or Jesus said in Matthew's gospel about laying up our treasure in heaven. Those who have lived life that way, they're going to receive reward. And the Bible, through the New Testament, and Peter uh, is uh, no exception to this idea of receiving rewards. We find at least five crowns alluded to, in fact, in the next chapter, Peter's going to specifically mention one of those crowns that can be earned, uh, that eventually, once we've obtained those crowns for our service, for our lives as Christians, if we've lived godly lives, we will eventually get to lay those crowns at Jesus's feet. And I've said this many times, uh, but I say it again, it's so important. Imagine standing there uh, in, the, in, the, in the throne room of heaven, and everybody's getting that opportunity to go and stand before the beamer seat of Christ, when our work is going to be assessed. And imagine, again, not having anything 
to give to Jesus. Yeah, if we've lived our lives, we'll receive those crowns. Those crowns we then give to Jesus. We sing the song, crowning with many crowns. It comes from Revelation chapter 4, the idea. And those crowns are worn by Jesus at the second coming. You know, those are the only uh, item or the only thing in Scripture that you'll find that we actually can give to Jesus, other than, of course, our love. But in terms of actually giving or presenting something to Jesus, the only thing you will find in Scripture that I can see, and by all means correct me if you think there's something I've missed, but the only thing I can see is that we are rewarded with these crowns and these crowns we then give to Jesus Christ as a thank you for his love for us, for his patience for us, for his grace, for his mercy. You know, do you honestly want to stand there before Jesus and go, well, you know, I've got nothing. You know, in a sense, I hid my talent in the ground. You know, Jesus gives us that example of of, of how that kind of servant will be uh, treated or seen. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7, we have an important statement. Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So when we come to a verse like we've just looked at from Peter, where it says that judgment or the season of judgment is going to start with the house of God, or if I may put it that way, to start with the church. If the time of judgment is going to begin with the church, then we should be ex- we should expect from what Amos tells us, or the Lord records through Amos, to find elsewhere in Scripture allusions or clear implications of what the Lord is going to do. Now, interestingly, I'm just going to read you a verse um, that uh, I didn't put in the, the notes, but it's quite uh, important in terms of understanding the context in it highlights this that i'm saying it's actually in psalm 50 um and it says uh here i'm just going to read psalm 50 and it says gather my saints together unto me doesn't that sound a little bit like the rapture to you those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice well you and i as believers the covenant we have made is by sacrifice not our sacrifice but by the sacrifice of the son of god We've made a covenant by sacrifice. And then it says, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness for God is judge himself. Selah. You know, it's, it's really clear. He's uh, verse four actually before that starts and says, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of the time of judgment coming. And it starts with God calling for his people that he may judge his people. Just an interesting allusion. So what Peter's saying here clearly is not a, a, a comment that's on its own. We'll find a lot of scripture to, to support this. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says, The thing that has been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon, with all of his wisdom, makes this important observation that actually... The things that have been done in the past are going to be repeated again. We're going to make the same mistakes, effectively, is the undercurrent here. Um, Hegel made this comment. He said, man learns from history that man learns nothing from history. Uh, I, I love that statement because really it just kind of sums up the same idea that the Solomon was saying. We're going to make the same mistakes. We're destined to repeat those same mistakes. So... Let's have a look at this issue of apostasy, because this is all going to tie into what Peter is saying, that the Lord is coming to judge the church. Now, the question, of course, why is God going to come and judge the church? Now, this is not talking about that time before the throne when we get to heaven. That's not talking about the 1 Corinthians 3 that I just mentioned. There will be that assessment. Absolutely. And Peter does address that elsewhere. But we're talking about this whole idea that God is going to start this season of judgment on earth by judging the church. Okay, so I just want to look at apostasy. Firstly, what is apostasy? Well, uh, from the, the Greek word, we have this idea of defection or revolt, uh, moving away from or coming apart from. Literally, it's to stand apart from. The idea is people that remove themselves from Jesus Christ, who is obviously the foundation and the the center of our faith. Uh, And of course, from the doctrine of Christ, which is again uh, expanded on through the New Testament. So look at the the history of this, just to give us some of the context, because you'll see an important uh, lesson that we draw from this. In Genesis chapter four, we read there verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God said, she has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, who Cain slew. And to Seth, 
uh, to him also there was born a son and he called his name Enos. And then we have this expression, then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that's the way it's translated, uh, typically in the English versions that we have. But there's an interesting little bit of uh, study that you can do. This verse, um, in various other translations, is translated slightly differently. It says, then began man to profane the name of the Lord. The idea of calling on the name of the Lord is not calling in terms of seeking God. It's using God's name uh, irreverently or in blasphemy or whichever other way. The Targon of Onkelos, uh, an ancient Jewish writing, said it translates it this way. Uh, then men desisted from praying in the name of the Lord. So rather than calling on the name of the Lord, it's actually the antithesis of that. The idea is that men ceased from calling out to God. They, they, they didn't want to call on God's name any, anymore. They rejected God's name. It's translated the same way in the Targon of Jonathan. Uh, they surnamed their idols in the name of the Lord. Now, that's exactly what happens with the golden calf. After they've left Egypt, they get to the base of Sinai. Moses is up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. They don't hear from him. And so they decide they want to build another god. They don't want to reject God completely. So they build an idol and they call their idol god. Well, that's just as offensive as going to any other so-called idol um, to try and create the, something that they can see a representation they can worship and they call that God of course God says in the Ten Commandments that we're not to do that we can't represent God by anything that we can build or make a number of scholars, uh, Kimchi, Rashi, Jerome, uh, even Maimonides uh, in his commentary on the Mishnah, uh, which dates back to about six, uh, 1168, ascribes the origin of idolatry to the days of Enosh Okay, so this is just very interesting. Very, very on early on in the world's history, we see apostasy beginning uh, and these things start to happen. So what we find, though, is there's a pattern that there's apostasy and the Lord allows it to run for a time, but then he'll bring his judgment. Of course, in the days of Enos, as we've just looked there, if those translations, if we can hold any store by uh, that uh, idea that's presented in those it's saying that people started to depart from God, to worship idols, to, to not uh, call on the name of God, but to blaspheme the name of God. Then that led, of course, to the judgment of the flood, uh, that whole period there of, of rebellion and apostasy. Of course, after the flood, we then have another situation with Cush, with Nimrod. Cush, uh, of course, the one ascribed for building the Tower of uh, Babel. Nimrod, his son, um, that was uh, so hugely instrumental in setting up so many of the idolatrous practices that are even today part of very uh, current popular uh, errors, um, apostasies and so on. Uh, the Catholic Church uh, draws a lot of its idolatry and heresy from the time of Babylon and Nimrod and so on. But that judgment was dealt with, of course, at the Tower of Babel, as the Lord comes down and confuses the languages and so on. I mentioned a moment ago the molten calf uh, that was erected in Exodus 32 when they tried to name their idol after the Lord. On that occasion, 3,000 people died. God brought judgment. There's a situation with Balaam. Uh, if you remember, the uh, council of Balaam, after he couldn't curse Israel, was to suggest that Balak would get all the, the pretty young ladies to go and try and seduce the young Israeli men. And of course, it worked. As a result of that, 24,000 people died. Uh, that apostasy, they departed from God. They stopped following, walking in the statues of God, as we were talking about our verse of the week. They, they, they did the, the uh, reverse of that. Interestingly, that passage in Leviticus 26 gives us 13 or so verses of blessing, and then the rest of it talks about curse. Deuteronomy 28 is another passage that does that. There's just about 14 verses which speak of the blessing for obedience, but then a significant rest of that portion, uh, some 60-odd verses, then go through speaking of the judgment that God will bring if we do not follow him. So this is a pattern through, uh, through Scripture. Uh, in Numbers 26, we have the account of Korah. Korah, of course, rebelled against Moses and Moses' leadership, um, not just challenging Moses, but ultimately really challenging God for placing Moses in that position, just rejecting uh, the whole situation. As a result of that, God brings judgment on Korah and 250 people die. 
And then, of course, we have the situation with Israel. Uh, Thirteen times in the book of Judges, uh, we find that Israel go into apostasy. They walk away from God. They they get into idolatry. They worship the gods of the nations that were around them. Uh, as a result of that, Israel are handed over to their neighbors uh, who then bring effectively God's judgment. God uses those surrounding nations to judge Israel. There's a total of 111 years that you can add up through that period of time uh, in total, not consecutively, but periods of time, 111 years in total, where Israel were in subjection, servitude to the nations around them. The children have been going through that as they've been looking through the accounts with Gideon and with Samson and so on recently. And then, of course, we have the situation with Israel and Judah uh, and just their disobedience going forward, the way that God had allowed them to have the land, to move into the land, to conquer the land, of course, to set up a king over them. But then those kings become corrupt. Uh, in Israel, the northern kingdom, there's not a single good king amongst them. In Judah, the southern kingdom, there's just five good kings out of uh, 19 or so out of all of them. They're just uh, it's such a, a, a terrible state of affairs. Uh, but as a result of that, the Lord allows the Assyrian army, the Assyrian kings, to come and take the northern kingdom captive in about 722 BC. And then finally, the southern kingdom are taken into captivity. It's God's judgment effectively on the nation. Uh, in 606 BC, it started, there was three sieges. And finally, uh, in 587 the southern kingdom of Judah were also finally removed from that land and the remnant were taken to Babylon, those that hadn't already fled to Egypt and so on. Right. Well, let me just read to you from Deuteronomy 13 because you just get the idea of God's opinion regarding idolatry, regarding um, spiritual fornication, effectively departing from God and going after other gods. In Deuteronomy 13, picking up verse 6, we read this. If thy brother just think of the context here thy brother the son of thy mother or thy son or thy daughter or the wife of thy bosom or thy friend which is as thine own soul just just think about what this is saying people who are the closest to you imaginable there is nobody closer than the relationships that are stated here if any of those entice thee secretly saying let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known thou nor thy fathers namely the gods of the people which are round about you nigh unto thee or far off from thee from one end of earth even unto the other end of the earth so if your family people that you love people that are really close to you try and encourage you to go after the gods that are round about now we're not dealing with the likes of Baal and Molech and these gods that Israel uh, were challenged with, we have far more subtle gods that are surrounding us. That There's much greater temptations in a sense because we often don't see them as other gods. But these are the things that surround us, the the, the world's entertainment, the world's way of, of being. And we're so often encouraged to follow after those things. This is the same thing. Well, this is what we read. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor listen, don't hearken unto him. Neither shall thy eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. You expose it immediately. You don't tolerate it for a moment is what we're being told. But thou shalt surely kill him. I mean, this is this is harsh language, isn't it? Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Do you get the intensity with which God values the relationship he has with you? That if anything or anyone, doesn't matter how close they are, were to try and come in between the relationship that you have with God, they are to be destroyed, is what God says. Now, of course, this was the law to Israel. We're not under the law, but don't fall under any illusion that the principles don't still apply. God still hates anything or anyone that would try and drive a wedge in between you and God in any way by leading you off into temptation, by leading you astray doctrinally or whatever. Goes on and says, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die because he has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Of course, you and I 
We didn't get delivered from Egypt. We got delivered from a far greater tyrant than Pharaoh. We got delivered from sin. And we've been brought out of that house of bondage. And so anybody that would try and lead us back into that, God absolutely detests. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. That's God's heart regarding anybody that would lead you astray or would cause you to fall into idolatry of any kind, of any description. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, this is a passage, actually, the ladies are going to uh, allude to at least a little on uh, uh, Wednesday evening, because um, I've seen some of uh, Joy's notes that she's been putting together. So um, you'll you'll come up against this uh, on Wednesday as you go through that study. But it's a really interesting portion of scripture. It starts by saying... Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, this is obviously to believers. I would not that you should be ignorant. I, I love Paul when he says these kind of things. You know, come on, understand. Don't don't be ignorant. Don't be in darkness. You should know this stuff. Okay? How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay. Speaking of the way that God led the children of Israel by the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, they went through the Red Sea. And it says, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So it's saying that really was like an act of baptism for them. That declaration that the old life is gone, the new life has begun. And verse three says, and all did eat the same spiritual meat. Because, of course, God provided food for them in the wilderness. They had the manna that God provided. And all did drink the same spiritual drink. Of course, God provided water. But then Paul says something interesting. He says, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Interesting. The rock, of course, uh, at um, Rephidim was split in half. Moses struck the rock. Uh, that rock we still believe is there to this day. You can see it. Um, but that rock was split. And as it was split, water came out. And of course, that rock speaks of Jesus Christ. And we find throughout their journeying, this idea of these rocks they came across. And it was as if Christ was going with them. Everywhere they went, they seemed to find a rock. And that rock would provide water. It speaks of the way that Jesus provides that living water for us. It speaks of the provision, all that God has given, ties in beautifully with what Peter's been saying. Think about what God has done for you, the way he's provided for you, the way he's delivered you, ransomed, redeemed, restored, all these things. Okay, they had an incredible beginning, just as the church. They had an amazing deliverance from bondage, just as the church. They passed through water to new life, just as the church. They were sustained by the bread of life, just as the churches. They were watered by the water of life, just as we have been through Jesus Christ. And so, of course, you ask the question, well, how could possibly anything go wrong? But it did. And we read in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10, But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Another way of expressing they were overcome in the wilderness. And of course, they end up dying in the wilderness. They were overcome by temptation. It resulted in that whole generation dying. Verse 6 then says, now these things were our examples. This is a lesson that we should learn from to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Interesting, isn't it? This comparison, of course, there was one occasion you remember when they were complaining, they wanted meat to eat and God caused quail to blow in and they had quail for a whole month till it was coming out of their nostrils. They had enough of it. They didn't want it anymore. Well, the world's a little bit like that. It tries to sell us this dream of what we really want and then you get it and actually it didn't really satisfy at all. Notice there was many of them that were caught up in this. And these are our examples. Okay, what did they lust after? Well, they lusted after things that were acceptable to the human palate. And isn't that the, the case with many in the church today? That they lust after things that are acceptable to the human palate. We don't want to be offended by things. You know, for example, do you know any churches that have abandoned the bread that God has provided, his word, in favor of that which is acceptable to the multitude? We've talked about this in depth on previous occasions and in the, the four part study that we've done previously on the judgment of the church. You know, we go through in detail looking at the errors that have been introduced through modern translations of the Bible, which are all presented as being a, a great aid to help you understand and learn. And then you start to dig through and you read through and there are some atrocious heresies and errors that are introduced through these modern versions. 
Again, we try to find something that's acceptable to the palate that we that we kind of can digest easily, that we enjoy, uh, and so on. But we end up moving away from God's best for us, and this is just as Israel did. Notice also in verse seven that neither be idolaters as some of them, um, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now. What is idolatry? Well, it's the second commandment, of course. It's the issue of misrepresentation. God is jealous of his name, his character, and his attributes. Anything that touches these is idolatry. So, for example, making a God in your own image, from your own imagination, to suit your own desires, that's idolatry. You know, trying to make God out to be what you want God to be, rather than accepting God for who he is you know making out that well god's probably okay with this god's probably all right with this particular thing with my lifestyle with me watching that or doing that or going here you know that's idolatry because we're making a god to suit ourselves you know and just as we see in exodus 33 even if you call your god lord do you know any churches today where they worship a god other than the one revealed in scripture I sadly know of many where they still call him God. They still worship him and sing songs as if he were God. But clearly their understanding is that this God is very different than the God revealed in the Bible. They still call him Lord. It's true. You know, they worship a God that won't send anyone to hell. I know an Anglican minister some years ago who I was in a conversation with, with some other pastors, and it came out as I challenged him. uh, And he made the the incredible statement that God wouldn't send anyone to hell. And that was the God he believes in. I'm sorry, but that is idolatry. That's making a God to suit yourself. You see, there's churches that have a God that can be worshipped in the way that you choose. Well, you only want to read Leviticus chapter 11 to understand that that is Nadab and Abihu ended up paying with their lives for making that mistake of thinking they could worship God in the way that they wanted to. They brought profane fire into the Lord. They didn't worship God with the fire that God had kindled. Effectively, the fire of the Holy Spirit would be the analogy for us. And they wanted to just go to God and worship him in the way and the manner and so on that they wanted to do. Yeah, well, there's many churches today that do that, and they have no real reverence um, for God in that respect. Of course, the God that loves and accepts uh, homosexuality. There are many churches that will teach that today. Now, you know, this isn't being homophobic. This is simply saying the Bible makes it very clear that God created man and woman. That is God's plan. God obviously establishes marriage, and God has that for a, a number of specific reasons, not least, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, to teach us about Christ and the church and the relationship God has with his church. And so, we find today many churches, without understanding the, the reasons and the principles behind this, which will fall to that, that modern idea of accepting anything and tolerating anything. Uh, and they, they say that's okay. Well, that again is idolatry. The idea that God would never punish his son. Some of you may be familiar, and I don't, you know, always name names, but where it's appropriate, I will. And certainly uh, an individual that uh, has been popular to some degree for many years now is a man by the name of Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk um, seemingly started off as a great kind of evangelist and wanted to go and talk to people about Jesus. Very quickly, uh, he went off the rails uh, and started talking about this idea of um, penal substitution uh, being, being absolutely abhorrent. The idea that God would never punish his son for the sins of the world saying that no father would do such a thing uh, many other areas as well he's kind of tried to introduce uh, he's become more of a uh, a political activist today rather than anything else um, but uh, sadly he still speaks at times into the christian arena but there are many people like that and churches have been influenced by such individuals um, that bring in this this just abominable heresy to say that god would never punish his son i mean don't think for a second god wanted to do that don't think that Jesus wanted to do that, but it was the only way to save mankind, to redeem humanity or for those who have ears to hear, to make it available to everyone who would accept. 
Of course, there's the churches that will tell us that God will choose to reveal himself through fresh revelations and experience becomes the key. All of these things are idolatry. The church has fallen foul of these things. You know, the God that uh, says that she doesn't want us to become gender exclusive. And I'm sure you've heard many of these kind of ideas touted in recent years. Uh, And we have gender neutral versions of the Bible and so on, which are just they're abominations. You know, the idea that God's written word is not the be all and end all. Uh, and that the Bible is simply a tool that we can use to help us. We take the bits we like and reject the things we don't like. Uh, many churches, uh, so-called churches, uh, teach their congregations these things today. So, you know, the, the, the point here is that Israel were warned that these things would bring judgment upon them, and yet they fell into it. And we're told that they're examples so we don't make the same mistakes. Well, guess what? We look at church history, we've made the same mistakes. It goes on in verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day. 23,000. Now, fornication, what is it? Well, it's an intimate relationship with someone other than the one you're espoused to. Now, in the spiritual context, we are espoused to Jesus Christ. So any relationship we have, with any uh, anyone other than Jesus in that context, spiritually, is deemed to be fornication. And through Israel's history, they committed spiritual fornication by going after embracing false gods. Now, let me just read this quote to you. Some of you may be familiar with the man by the name of Robert Shuler. Uh, he was one of the proponents of the kind of the big mega church in America early on, um, very much behind. Uh, ideas that led to uh, Rick Warren's purpose-driven uh, life and all those kind of ideas. Well, this is what uh, Robert Schuller, lots of new age connotations were brought in here, but this is one a quote from him. He said, standing before a crowd of devout Muslims with the Grand Mufti. I didn't know we had a Grand Mufti, but apparently he says, the case, uh, he says, I know that we're all doing God's work together, standing on the edge of a new millennium. We're laboring hand in hand to repair the breach. I believe in positive thinking. It is almost as important as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sadly, many churches get duped by these things. They start to believe that we are all part of one big happy family, all going to the same place. Well, let me tell you now, the people that believe that are all going to the same place, but it's not the place that they think they're going to. Schiller's marketing methods laid the foundation for the church growth movement. And he claims to have launched the megachurch movement through his Institution for Successful Church Leading in America. Um, Here, ministers are inspired to believe in their dreams, says Schuller, and to present the good news of the gospel in positive terms. Well, sorry, but the gospel can never be presented in positive terms because it states that we have all fallen, that we are all sinners, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That's the gospel. It's not a positive message for somebody in the world that's looking to boost their self-esteem. It's a message that totally undoes us and brings us to nothing until we realize that Christ is everything. So the lessons, again, that the Israel were taught that they failed at, we should have learned from them. We haven't. It says, neither let us tempt Christ, an interesting expression. You know what it's like when your children tempt you and you say to them, don't do something. And then they look to see if they can get away with it. I'm sure as parents, you've had those moments where you just watch your child and you just see that little glint in their eye of that kind of, I wonder if I can, you know, well, that's the idea. We've been told how we should live. We've been told what we should uh, strive uh, to follow, the, 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 the pure milk of the word of God and not to be led aside by every wind of doctrine. And we know this stuff, but sadly, so many believers and so many churches tempt Christ because they just t- push the boundaries. I wonder if I can. Would this be it? Could I just... And some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Of course, speaking of the situation, I believe it's Numbers 23. Um, where uh, Jesus alludes to the whole episode in John 3. And neither murmur ye. Notice this, as murmuring also is a bad thing. As some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. The number of things that Paul lists that we should have learnt from here. What led to that? It was a Numbers 21, apologies. The Numbers 21 event. It was the rejection of the bread that God had provided. It was the murmuring of dissatisfaction. They wanted something else. 
Now, Rick Warren, I mentioned a moment ago, pastor of Saddleback Church in America, uh, author of Purpose Driven Life and all that whole phenomena that t- took over the church. He was interviewed uh, in a newspaper article in Philadelphia in America, and he made this statement. He said he despises fundamentalism in the church. Well, just stop for a minute, because immediately that lumps us in with the Muslim fundamentalists, for example, or any religious fundamentalist or extremist. But what is fundamentalism? Fundamentalism is simply sticking to the fundamentals. Fundamentalism is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with being a fundamentalist. The issue is what your fundamentals are. For us as Christians, our fundamentals are the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's non-negotiable. But Warren says, well, he despises that idea, that concept of being a fundamentalist, sticking to the fundamentals. He goes on and, and says that it will be one of the biggest, the fundamentalism will be one of the biggest enemies of the 21st century. He says Muslim fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, secular fundamentalism, they're all motivated by fear, fear of each other. Well, sadly, that's not true. Let's carry on. Verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition. That stuff we've just gone through is there to warn us that we don't make the same mistakes. And notice what Paul says, upon whom the ends of the world are come. You know, we're living in the last days. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, the first step in being deceived is to think you can't be deceived. All right. And Paul says, be careful because you might think you're standing. You might think you're great. We might think as a church, we're great. We've got it all right. And, you know, and we can't be deceived. Well, guess what? You know, we can. Every one of us can be deceived and we need to be discerning. We need to keep going back to scripture and seeking God's heart, God's will. Scripture speaks much about guarding against errors. Take heed, therefore, in Acts 20, verses 28 and 29, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. For this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul speaks of error coming into the church. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. People love a following, don't they? We live in a a culture and a world where we have social media, where one of the objectives is to get lots of people following you. Well, that's exactly what we have spiritually going on. People like to get people following them. Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, Paul says this to the uh, Ephesian elders on the beach at Olytus, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. All right, but Paul's saying, you know, I told you about this. I warned you every day, three years, one day I, I cried, I wept over this. Well, I want you to understand how important this issue is. In Jude, Jude writes and says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the, com- of, uh, of the common salvation, it was needful, or at least I had to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. It's not going to be rehashed or repeated or revised. It's the same gospel. It was delivered once. It doesn't change. Because then he says that there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. You know, this grace we have, this liberty we have in Christ is incredible. But there are people that say, well, yeah, but then you can do whatever you want. And they try and encourage Christians to, to veer from that path that we know is right. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In Second Peter, Peter will go on to say, and by God's grace, we'll get there in a few weeks' time. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them. Well, of course, evolution is one such thing. Says there is no God. We don't need God. And even many pastors and many churches are quite comfortable to accept evolution as the mechanism for how we got here. And there are many other things we could draw on, put on that list. Even denying the Lord that brought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many, this is so sad. Look at that word there, many. The, the word brought, by the way, is to purchase. God has purchased, redeemed us. Peter's talked about that. But they're going to bring on themselves, uh, many, sorry, um, shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
We were speaking this morning of uh, the plans of uh, Nicola Sturgeon to try and bring in changes to the laws that would make this statement absolutely true, that people will speak evil of the way of our lives as Christians because of the laws they try and pass. And they'll bring in these, these, these pernicious ways, as it speaks of here. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter you in at the straight gate. Now, again, notice what Peter said where we started, that, you know, the righteous are scarcely saved. It's a, it's a narrow way. Enter at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. You know, even the um, the secular world has kind of got it right. If you think of some of the songs that the secular world has written, we have a highway to hell and we have a stairway to heaven. You know, the songs that are written, but it's true. You know, it is just a narrow path to heaven, but it is a broad way to hell. And notice again the word many, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Notice also in Second Peter what he says. Again, there were false uh, prophets. This is with the verse we read a moment ago. But I just want to go back to that last verse, the uh, last part of the verse. He says, by way whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. This is where we are now. And this comes from within the church too. In First Timothy 4. Uh, now the Spirit speaks, speaks expressly. You know, I, I think this is the only occasion in Scripture where we have this, this wording. The Holy Spirit is speaking expressly, trying to communicate with us in the, the loudest, clearest possible terms, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirit and doctrines of devils. Okay, this is stuff that is being brought into the church, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So, we've seen already that what has been will be. Apostasy has always occurred, and apostasy is always met by God's judgment. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude, and others all foretold of this apostasy. Apostasy creeps in unnoticed and unannounced. It will come from within the church. This is the danger. This is what Paul said. This is what Peter said. Many are going to be led astray with a false gospel, and we see it going on. The final apostasy, from what we read in scripture, will culminate in a one-world, all-embracing church. And the likes of Robert Schuller, and not necessarily himself, I'm not passing judgment on Rick Warren uh, per se, but some of the things he said certainly are destructive and very, very dangerous. And there's many others that are in senior or uh, positions of authority, shall we say, within the global church around the world. Uh, that say all sorts of things that are leading the church to um, relax, to be um, uh, a little bit more carefree with our stance on doctrine. You know, that we don't need to worry too much about those things. And it's going on all the time. We've been told we don't need to worry about this. And, of course, Israel is another big part of the equation that, you know, we, we don't need to worry about that. And, you know, you've heard all these arguments before. Of course, those who oppose these changes, the things that are going on within the church, evil is going to be spoken of them. But God is finally going to judge this apostate church. And this brings us back to the verse that we started with, that Peter says the judgment, the season of judgment is going to commence with the house of God. Hopefully now, going through what we've been through, seeing Paul's warnings in in 1 Corinthians 10, you start to see why God says he will bring judgment upon the church or the church that supposedly bears his name. Now, in Isaiah 46, God says there that he knows the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. So we shouldn't be surprised that God has recorded these things in advance. Now, just very quickly, in Revelation 2 and 3, we have seven letters to seven churches. They lay out the history of the church from the book of Acts to the time of the second coming. There are people that will try and debate that and dispute that. But, you know, it's it's a kind of a futile exercise. We'll talk about it in a second. But Matthew 13, interestingly, we also have seven parables about the kingdom that also mirror and map those seven, par- uh, seven letters to the seven churches. They also lay out the history of the church. Now, in Revelation... Two and three. There's at least four levels of meaning to these letters to the churches. It's practical. It's addressed to real churches that existed at that time. It's addressed to individuals because it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So if you've got an ear, then this applies to you. So there's lessons for each of us in these things. It's a general because it says, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So each of these letters applies to every church and there's learning we can deduce from that. But it's also prophetic because we're told very clearly that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy prophecy 
Now, another little simple test here is if you find a door in a garden, for example, and then next to it on the floor you found a key, how do you know if that key fits the door? Well, the simple way is to try it. You simply put it in the lock, and if it turns it, you know it fits. It's very much the same here. Do, do these letters to the churches map out church history? Well, we have a look. And when we look, we find exactly in incredible detail they do just that. The seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, are split into two groups, effectively. The first ones, there's a promise in the letters, and it's kind of at the end of the letter, and there's an end predicted. The second four, the promise is part of the letter itself, the structure's different, and, and continuance is stated. Okay, In other words, they will continue up until the time of the end, and all a reference to the second coming. It's interesting. Just want to take you through these very quickly because you'll see the the plan of church history that's laid out here, and again understand why God is going to bring judgment on the so-called church. First of all, Ephesus means love of espousal, just as uh, with with Israel, they started off with this relationship with the Lord of this this love of espousal. Jeremiah speaks of that. Well, so the church did, and the church of Ephesus was this church that that loved doctrine. They loved the Word of God. It takes really that first church age up to about a hundred A.D. In Revelation two five. There's this warning though given them. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. And do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Well, sadly, that church at Ephesus that had John as a pastor for a time, Timothy was there pastoring for a time. I mean, this was a good church. I mean, they're the kind of pastors you want in your church if you can get them. They're, that's the place to go. But this church faded. It disappeared off the scene. Why? Well, because they left their first love. You remember what we were saying earlier about anything that comes in between with you, between you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. The second church age is characterized by the letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna itself means suffering. It comes from that root word myrrh, which, of course, you recognize that spice uh, that was used for embalming and so on. And it really takes us from 100 AD up to 313 AD. And it speaks of the time of the persecuted church. Interestingly enough, there's nothing bad said about this church. It's one of only two churches, nothing negative said. And it was during this time, though, that in Matthew, the uh, parables and the parallel in Matthew, that with tares were sown among the wheat. During this time, there was all sorts of things that were gradually being introduced in the church. Although this was a good church overall, there were some insidious things being introduced by some of the so-called early church fathers. They were given this instruction to be faithful unto death. Of course, that church as a whole, um, they were very faithful and many of them are martyred. But that leads on to the next church age, the church of Pergamos. Uh, Pergamos means mixed marriage. The gamos, of course, we have um, monogamy, polygamy, those words have to do with marriage. Per, again, we have prefix words like perversion and so on. It means to twist. So it's really a mixed or a twisted marriage is the idea that's being presented in the word here. It's that third church age, which goes from the time of Constantine in about 313 AD up to about 590. Constantine puts himself there as like the first pope, if you like, the first leader of the church and of state at the same time, uh, mixing the church with the world. Of course, the warning there was repent or else I'll come quickly unto thee and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, that, of course, lays the foundation for the fourth church age. And this now is the church of Thyatira. Thyatira means continual sacrifice. And it's interesting that this really depicts the Roman Catholic Church, who one of the key tenets, of course, is this idea of transubstantiation, this continual sacrifice that when they celebrate communion, they are literally every time re-sacrificing the body of Jesus Christ and drinking his blood and so on. Uh, So this idea of continual sacrifice is a very apt name. Um, from really the period of 590 AD right through now to the tribulation. All these churches now going forward from here, the end is spoken of as being in the tribulation, not uh, prior to that. So the fourth church age uh, depicted by that. And of course, we have that statement in Revelation 2 that God had given us space to repent of a fornication. We've talked about that, that uh, unlawful indulgence uh, relationship with someone other than Christ. And she repented not. Behold, I'll cast into bed and they that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. We don't need to spend time this morning talking about the adultery that you see and the fornication uh, and the idolatry that you see within the Roman Catholic Church. 
Well, the next church age was the Church of Sardis. Now, this really speaks of the, the church of the time of the Reformation. Sardis means remnant. Now, of course, we tend to look at the Reformation as a great period of time for the church. It was the rediscovering of the doctrine of salvation by grace with Martin Luther very much championing that cause. Um, we also find another other, a number of other positive things. But at the same time, there was a lot that was left undone. It's the beginning of denominations, if you like, because from that point, we have the Church of England break away and then the Baptist Church comes out of that. The Methodist Church comes out of that and so on. So we end up with all the denominations really coming from this point. Uh, and many of them never readdressed the, the doctrines that have been corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church. Many of the Reformation churches remain fiercely anti-Semitic because they never went back to Scripture. Well, there's a warning for this church um, that if you uh, don't watch the God become as a thief uh, and not you wouldn't know the hour coming upon them. Interestingly enough, nearly all of these church groups, by and large, reject or refuse to tolerate, to look at, to consider or to study the end times. They don't want to look at, they, they reject the rapture almost out of hand. And the second coming, they don't tend to think about. In fact, they, they tend to um, muddy the waters by talking about um, this or the idea that's known as amillennialism, that there won't be a literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ, as the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, they say it will just be a period of time and all these things get watered down. So they, they move away from the idea of a literal return of Jesus. I'm sure you've heard many of these things taught. Well, then we get to the church that is a good church. It's the Church of Philadelphia. This is the only other church in these seven letters where something, where, where nothing bad is spoken of them. It's the Church of Brotherly Love. That's what Philadelphia means. And really, it takes us from around about the time of 1750, as people really started getting back to the Word of God, back to Scripture, believing it, teaching it faithfully. And of course, there's some great characters in church history, and we don't necessarily approve or agree with everything they said and did or wrote, but you have the likes of Moody or uh, the the um, likes of Spurgeon, of course, Oswald Chambers would fit into that. And I would have things like Chuck Smith and the work that he did with Calvary Chapel in the early days. You know, there's a great move of God's spirit, drawing people back to the word of God, back to God's heart with a, an expectation and a looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the promise given to them is that because thou hast kept the word of my patience, the word, notice, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Interestingly, there's a promise here to escape the coming judgment. Uh, by being taken out of the world. Interesting. Exactly what the rapture de- uh, tells us in 1 Thessalonians 10, uh, 1 10, and also Luke uh, 21, 36. Jesus promised a way of escape all the things that were coming upon the world. But that brings us to the last church age. And we see so many abuses, particularly on so-called um, Christian TV and the like. But uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with these things. We don't have to go into detail. But really, this is the apostate church, which really began back in about the 1900s and is going through to the time of the tribulation, where so many abuses are brought in. So much uh, error has been introduced into the church in general. And, and the Lord speaks and says, I will spew thee out of my mouth because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Interesting um, lessons drawn from the church of Laodicea, or the people of the place of Laodicea. There, those references, all very specific. Um, but the church today thinks it's got everything it needs. It's very wealthy. It's got all uh, the resources, and we have all the multimedia, and we have the lights and the buildings, and yet spiritually so often bankrupt. You know, as I said earlier about the translations, we've got more Bible translations now than we've ever had, and we've got the most biblically illiterate generation. Um, that really has been since the time of the Reformation and the translation of the Bible into English. When we look at these churches together, the first three churches, Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamos, all kind of reached an end. But then Thyatira is promised going into the tribulation. Sardis uh, and so on the same. Philadelphia are promised a way of escape, but Laodicea clearly go into the tribulation. To summarize this, effectively, we have the Catholic Church, we have the Reformation churches, we have the modern churches, all of which have their own errors and, and uh, uh, corruptions that they've introduced. Now, I'm not saying every individual in these churches will be like this but the systems themselves which cannot be changed many of us have been there you know for many years i was part of an established traditional church and i stayed and my parents stayed because we really believe we could change things 
Guess what? We couldn't change things. You know, we may be encouraged and helped and blessed a few individuals, but we didn't change the system. And eventually the Lord called us out and said, no, no, for me, obviously the Lord has led me into this position now as a teacher, as a pastor. For my dad, the same situation, both independently, I'd add. You know, we didn't sit down and discuss our plan. You know, the Lord just led us out. We realized you cannot change the system. And that's what I'm talking about here. Not the individuals specifically, but the systems themselves. They all will end up as part of a one world church as all the the barriers and the the walls are broken down a compromise takes over uh, and we end up um, with a situation i mean you've you've probably heard the expression chrislam the idea of merging christianity and islam together and saying well we've all got the same god you know and we can work together and so on and of course social justice becomes a big motivator to those things because people say well it's a good idea why not do it yeah but it's getting away from the truth of scripture and from that which we've been told that there is one way for salvation now again i said about the parables in matthew uh, they lay out also the history the future of the church in the same way these uh, seven parables parallel the seven letters very quickly um the first parable the parable of the sower like ephesus and the foundation everything was being laid and so on but then the parable of the wheat and tares like smyrna when these things were being sown uh even the ideas of things like amillennialism and all those ideas were sown during that period of church history the parable of the mustard seed pergamos the idea that the mustard seed should have started as something small but grown into no more than a bush but this one in the parable it often Typically, Sunday schools are, are taught that this becomes a lovely tree. Isn't it beautiful? The birds of the air come and dwell in the branches, and it's a lovely picture. No, it's not. The birds of the air in Scripture are always seen as being ministers of Satan, workers of iniquity. And, of course, this mustard seed, which should not have grown to the size it did, becomes something it was never intended to be. Just as the church, by embracing the world through Constantine at that time of history, became something it should never, it was never intended to be. Suddenly, the church went from meeting in in the homes and the catacombs and so on to meeting in lovish ornate pagan temples the pagans were forced out the church had given these buildings great for architecture because it then spans a, a period of history where we build some wonderful buildings terrible for the truth of scripture because it gets pushed to one side it's called the dark ages for a reason then there's the parable of the leaven. Interesting, Thyatira. Uh, you know, this church, uh, very much again, uh, analogous, analogous to the Catholic church, where this woman, we see, uh, interestingly how Catholics have this love, and this worship of, of Mary. Uh, again, nothing wrong with Mary, but she's not to be worshipped. She's not to be prayed to. She's not an intercessor and so on. But that parable interestingly maps that. The parable of the hidden treasure does very much speak of the time of Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther gave up everything. He, he he grabbed hold of this treasure, this gospel of grace. And yet, clearly, as the letter to Sardis tells us, there were still issues and problems in that period of church history. Then, interestingly, the fourth, uh, sorry, the sixth parable is the one of the goodly pearl. Well, you'll know, of course, that pearls are not kosher for the jews this is a gentile thing and what happens with a pearl well it's taken from its place and it becomes an item of adornment what happens to the church well the church will be taken from our place and we become an item of adornment for jesus christ the church of philadelphia of course is the letter that parallels that and then one final parable in matthew 13 is the parable of the dragnet where everything is brought in or dragged together uh it's just an interesting study we haven't got time to go into the details of those things but i'll just share it with you okay just in in closing um just want to take you through this some of you may have seen this before but it is so fascinating as you realize what god is doing Israel and the church, the incredible parallels here. They both started with a period of 38 years of espousal. Okay, the church from the time of AD 32, the year of the crucifixion, up until AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Of course, you know, Israel, 38 years in the wilderness wandering. That goes on with Israel to the time of this victory through the time of war as they entered into the promised land. Well, the church also had victory through suffering, de- detailed for us in the letter to Smyrna. Then Israel go into this complacency, the time of the judges. It brought defeat as they started embracing the world. The same thing happened to the church. Again, the complacency brought defeat in that time of Pergamos and Constantine, we married to the world. 
There's the rejection of theocracy by Israel as they wanted a man to rule over them. The same thing happens with the papacy as we suddenly have a man to rule over the church. Then, of course, as a result of that, the kingdom was divided through Solomon's apostasy. We have Israel, the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern. Interestingly, Israel, though they were renowned for their idolatry, their good works were commended in Jeremiah 3.11. Judah, who you think would be you know raised as a a banner of of this is the way it should be well actually it was said that their uh works their efforts were worse than that of israel because they had the example of the northern kingdom to follow but they made even worse mistakes the same thing happens of course with the division of the church we have the catholic church which just like israel got into idolatry and the protestant church of which in uh, the letters to the seven churches in sardis nothing good is said of course, on those churches in, or sorry, on those, uh, kingdoms in Israel, judgment was foretold, but the faithful were taken away. They were removed from the judgment that fell upon Israel. Well, so the truth is of the church. The judgment is foretold, but the faithful will be taken away before the judgment comes. Then the apostates and the false prophets in Israel were destroyed. Jerusalem was burned with fire. The same will happen also with the coming church system. There's one world church. The false prophets will be destroyed uh, and so on. It will all be burnt with fire. And then, of course, the faithful in Israel did eventually return to inherit the land. There was a temple built that the Messiah would eventually teach from. Of course, it's the same for the church. The faithful will eventually return with Jesus at the second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom. Just an amazing parallel. God says he's told future in advance. And here you see it exactly the same. And as Paul said in First Corinthians 10, you know, we've made the same mistakes. But this is why judgment will come upon the church. You see, Peter says that specific season of judgment is going to begin at the church. Uh, he's been saying that we must imitate Christ in submitting to God's will. We must be prepared to suffer for doing the right thing. And now he concludes by saying, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. I love the way Peter just uses that expression, that he is our creator. You know, again, we're told here because of what's coming, because judgment will be coming upon the church or the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ. We are told that we should commit our souls. Notice that not just our bodies, but our souls, the eternal part of us to him in well doing. If we keep walking in the way, if we keep seeking to to walk according to his statutes, just as that verse from the week that Amita read to us from um, Leviticus 26 this morning. You know, if we keep walking, if we keep obeying his commandments and keep his word at the center, then we will be safe. We'll be secure. We'll be uh, free from the errors that are being brought in. We are but pilgrims passing through. We're not called to a monastic life, to live a life of solitary, but to go forth in the very world from which we have been delivered, being in it, but not of it, declaring everywhere God's offer of salvation through the finished work of his beloved son. In 2 Timothy 1.12, it says, I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Julian declared that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You know, persecution can never destroy the church of God. Its dangers lie within. I just want to read to you in closing for, for Philippians. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man, uh, if, if, sorry, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof, he may trust in the flesh. I more, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yet doubtless, I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ. Next week, by God's grace, we're going to go on and look into the last chapter of First Peter, chapter 5. And Peter's going to give this great exhortation that he is coming. Okay. Let's just bow our hearts and just, uh, just thank the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for these lessons. Lord, stir our hearts with these things. May we be aware, Lord, of the apostasy that is around us within the church, Lord, threatening to deceive and to lead us astray. But Lord, keep us, we pray, with our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus. Lord, help us to reject anything or anyone that will lead us away from you. 
Father, we just thank you for these things that we've been able to look at this morning, that we would grow in grace. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, we ask. Amen.